uh, as you turn to Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, Genesis 1 tells us that we human beings, male and female, were and are created in the image of God. We're the only part of creation that has the Imago Dei inside of us. We were given a creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in doing so, we would fill the earth with the Imago Dei. So that all creation would know the creator through the ones that he created in his image. In Psalm 8, we get a few more details about God's desire for us as humanity. When he says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is, human, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him, us, a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. God made us and crowned us with glory and honor and made us to rule over creation with him. There is an incredible inherent purpose and plan in the creation of humanity, which God has given us, which includes him sharing with us his image, his glory, his honor, his rule. But we also know that has not been the experience of humanity. That is not what has been happening. That is not what is happening. Genesis 3 also happened. Our parents rebelled against this plan and were not content with sharing what God had given them. They wanted it all for themselves. And this sin nature that infected creation has been passed down to every single generation. And we watch, as we watch people hoard gasoline, as we see conflict break out once again in the Middle East, as we see our culture continue to be divided over masks and vaccines and how to navigate a global pandemic, politicians in all parties that are playing games with people's lives and trillions of dollars, and sometimes we have this chronological snobbery that makes us think we should be past all this. Haven't we evolved and, and, and progressed to a, a place, scientific technology, uh, philosophy, thinking, have we, have, shouldn't we be at it beyond all this? Like, why do we still see these things happen? I mean, we're, we're still shooting rockets at each other. We're still putting gas in Rubbermaid containers. I mean, seriously? And what we fail to see is that despite the advancements that we've made in some ways, that we're still human. We're the same humans who rebelled against God in the garden when everything was perfect and they had no excuses. We're the same humans who have done amazing things in the course of world history because we do possess the Imago Dei, but we've also done the worst things on the planet in the course of human history. Far worse than natural disasters, far worse than wild animals or asteroids could inflict. It's what we've done to each other. This beauty and brokenness of humanity is behind what we read today in Hebrews 2. We've seen the divinity of Jesus boldly declared so far, far greater than angels. And now we're in this section where we're digging deep into the humanity of Jesus. Joseph began that last week, and we pick up with verse 10 this week. Jesus became like us so he could accomplish his work of redemption and utterly, utterly transform our reality. Humanity is glorious, but it's broken to its core because we're infected with sin to our core. And apart from what Jesus has accomplished for us, there would be no hope. But because of what he's done, well, that changes everything. So let's read through the passage, and, and we're going to walk through and see these things, what Jesus has done to change our hopeless, sinful reality. Beginning in verse 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God 
for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you, to the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. We see at least 10 things Jesus did in this passage to transform our reality from only being sinful, broken humanity. As we walk through these, my, my prayer for, for what I've gotten to experience so far, my prayer for you guys, for us, is for these 10 realities just to wash over our minds and hearts in fresh, powerful ways, for, for our affection for Jesus to grow once again. And maybe for some who might be here, for you to trust in Jesus like never before, and for you to come alive in Him. So, number one, Jesus brings us to glory. We open with a big one, a phrase that could be used to describe all of salvation and redemption, and a phrase we rarely ever use. Like we, we talk about salvation as we're, we're being saved, we're forgiven, redeemed, cleansed, adopted, sanctified. We say that a lot, but we're also being brought to glory. So it's a phrase we should use more often. We're adopted into God's family and the original purpose we had in creation to share in his glory and honor in Jesus, that is restored in Jesus. We're headed back to that, and to some degree, we experience some of that now. Ma- uh, Jesus told uh, Peter, Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So in very significant ways, things that we do as the church, the people of God now, have an impact already in heaven, in eternity. We can lay up treasures in heaven when we're living for heavenly treasures and not just earthly wealth. Those kinds of things. Now, when the eternal kingdom comes, we will rule and reign with him. Not not instead of him, but with him. That was the era of the garden. We will rule with him. Share in his glory and honor and carry out the rule and authority that he's given us in the eternal state. And Jesus is bringing us to glory. We are being brought to glory. We're not bringing ourselves. He's bringing us to glory. He's doing it for us. He leads us. He makes this happen. He's the hero. We're not the hero. It's done by God for whom and through whom all things exist. He is the agent. He makes everything. He owns everything. He rules over everything. What ultimately happens is according to his gracious and sovereign will. So he accomplishes this. Secondly, Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. Or your Bible may say source. This salvation bringing us to glory is accomplished by Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation. Pioneers were always fascinating to learn about in school. Like my ears were uh, perked up. Like pioneer, cool, adventurer, trailblazer. 
Men and women who are moving into new areas of the world or a new field of study, accomplishing feats that have never been done before. Trailblazers, there's no roadmap to follow. They're building on the backs of other people before them, yes, but they're going in places that no one's ever been before. They had to hack their way through a jungle or dive to the depths of the ocean or discover lands that, that supposedly haven't been discovered, even though sometimes they had already been discovered. They had to figure out new research or develop new techniques. Jesus walked a road to accomplish our salvation that not only had no one else ever walked, but no one else could walk. In fact, Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of where we have failed, where God's people had failed. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days, never gave in to sin, unlike the nation of Israel, who continually failed in the wilderness and gave in to sin. Even the meekest man on earth, Moses, sinned and failed and didn't enter the land of promise. Jesus never failed and brings us into the land of promise, into glory. Sometimes we, when we continue to see the failure of church leaders and churches and Christian organizations, sometimes when it feels like what we're doing and chasing is we're just no better than any other organization as far as what we're accomplishing and, and how we fail at what we're doing. When we inflict damage in relationships, when we seemingly don't make a dent in the broken world, we can do a good work, get our name in the paper, Woo-hoo, what, what have we actually accomplished that makes a, a transformational dent in our broken culture? When we're tempted to be in despair all all, over all of that, that's when we have to turn our eyes back to Jesus. It's about Him, the pioneer, the source of our faith, salvation. There's no one like him. There's no one who's done what he's done. There's no one who is who he is. It's Jesus. It's his work accomplishing his purposes. He is what makes his church unique, special, amazing. It's not our amazing guitar playing in our box. I know you're tempted to think that. It's really not. It's not our amazing cinder block box that we meet in each week. This building's great, but this is not what's going to transform a city. It's not our new view outside the windows because we pull the curtains back. It's not our incredible sermon graphics or our plastic chairs. It's not our amazing food that we share with people in restaurants or we share with them in our homes. All that is great, but it's not Jesus. It's Jesus we're offering to our city. It's Jesus that is, is who will transform our city. It's Jesus making an impact in ways we don't even realize, but we keep pressing on, not losing heart, not giving up because Galatians 6, 9, we will reap fruit in due season. He is the pioneer. He is the trailblazer who did everything necessary to change our lives and change the lives of people we know and love. Thirdly, Jesus sanctifies us. Verse 11, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Sanctify, make holy. Like, isn't this great? We have this positional sanctification because our standing before God is rooted in Jesus, based in Jesus. So we can rightly be called holy and blameless right now and all the time because God sees us robed in the righteousness of Jesus. Yes, our entrance and acceptance into God's kingdom and presence is based on Jesus. And so it's secure. But we also have this practical sanctification in which we are being made holy, being transformed. Romans 8, 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror 
at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's so easy to see our flaws and our sins, but with equal accuracy, see Jesus is not done with you yet. You have been changed. You are being changed. You will be changed. Yes, we will always battle sin. We will always be very aware of how we have not arrived yet. But he's not done. And if you're super aware of your sins and your need of sanctification, be thankful for that. It's far worse to be in a place where you think you have arrived. And you're eat up with self-righteousness and, and condemning and judging people who haven't arrived like you have. But if you're living in despair because all you see is your brokenness, be encouraged. He is sanctifying you. He is changing you. The kid's song is right. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me and you. He's sanctifying you. He's not going to give up on you. Fourthly, Jesus is not ashamed of us, his brothers and sisters. The one who sanctifies us, we who are sanctified, we have one father, which makes us brothers and sisters with Jesus. Look at verse 11. Um, We all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children that God gave me. Quotations from Psalm 22, quotations from Isaiah 8 that speak of God's children being redeemed, sanctified through the work of the Messiah and being fully accepted into the family of God. And since we have one father, Jesus is our true and good older brother who is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. This isn't true of all humanity. This is true of those who share the same father, which is those who are being sanctified by Jesus. So this only applies to followers of Jesus, our older brother. And he is unashamed. I think this weekend, uh, I think it was graduation for every single school and university on the face of the earth, according to my Facebook feed. It's one of those weekends you're like, oh, this is why we like Facebook sometimes. Everybody's happy, joyous, this is good. We're celebrating these milestones in life. And, And everyone's happy on graduation day. Everyone gets dressed up. Everyone has smiles. No matter how much your kid may be driving you crazy, on graduation day, you're super proud of them. Look what they did. Look what they accomplished. Or actually, as a parent, look what we did. Look what we accomplished because we were helping them all along the way, no matter how you did schooling. We're boasting, proud. This is great. And this is how Jesus feels about you, brother and sister in Christ, all the time. He's never hiding you in his Facebook feed. He's, He's unashamed of you, proud to call you brother and sister of his, that through his redeeming work. Like in the Roman culture, when emperors would list their genealogies, they would leave off family members who had done disgraceful things. They wouldn't include them in the, in the genealogy. That brought disgrace on the family name because of their mistakes and their errors and their defeats and victory in, in battles. But in the genealogy of our king, we have this shocking inclusion. We have men like Abraham and Isaac who openly lied about their relationship with their wives. We have 
men like Jacob, who if he wasn't in Hebrews 11, we would question whether or not he was even a Christian. He was such a dumpster fire. Guys like David, who committed adultery and murder. Guys like uh, Solomon, who had hundreds of wives. But then you also have women in the genealogy, which wasn't done in ancient cultures. Tamar, the incest survivor, who was soiled by the, the works of Judah and his two sons. Bathsheba, the adulteress, who was soiled by the, the works of King David. Rahab, the prostitute. Mary, the unwed single mom. It was shocking enough to have women listed in the genealogy, but women with these backstories? Really? Rahab, along with Ruth, who weren't even Jewish. So what you see in the scriptures is Jesus elevating the status of women constantly because there is no higher status women can have than what God gives them, the one who created them and called them. But Jesus also elevates the status of the sinner, the mistake prone. If you are his, you belong. He is not and never will be ashamed of you, but glad to call you brother and sister. When Jesus sees you, he doesn't hide his face from you. I just can't deal with you right now. You're never too much for him, ever. If Jesus were to see you on an aisle in Walmart, he wouldn't shuffle away to another aisle so he doesn't have to talk to you or be seen with you. He would gladly embrace you. Yes, I'm so happy to see you. We are his redeemed people. Jesus is not the older brother or the older sibling who tolerates the younger sibling, but Jesus is the one who fully embraces us. Hey, younger sibling, you want to go do something fun? Let's get in the car. You ride in the front. You choose a radio station. You pick where we eat. You choose uh, the kind of fun that we're going to have. He is so for us. Fifthly, Jesus took on flesh. Verse 14. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. Jesus had to become like us in becoming truly human. The only aspect of our humanity he did not possess was our sin nature. He never sinned. He was born of a virgin. He possessed the ability to sin in his human nature, but he didn't need a sin nature in order to sin. Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature, and they sinned. But his divine nature would have never allowed him to sin, so he felt the full weight of what it was like to be fully tempted, yet never sinning. In fact, he felt greater weight because we get rid of the pressure in giving into temptation he never got rid of that pressure he kept saying no 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 all the way to the end of his incarnational ministry now we'll get more into that in hebrews 4 but he had to become like us to represent us the incarnation was essential to 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 redemption him becoming a human for christ to represent us before god and sacrifice himself for us he had to be like us which only allowed him to love us even more because now he fully understands us. Whenever you go through something unique or difficult, you get the perspective of someone else who shares the same story. You can relate in a unique way, right? Like who understands best the experience of parenting a newborn? Other parents of newborns. So up here watching some of you guys struggle with newborns, I'm like, I know what that feels like. Glad I'm up here. I get that. Who best gets the loneliness of singleness more than the one who is single? Who gets the trauma of abuse more than the one who's been abused? Who understands best what it's like to be a minority ethnicity in a majority culture than one who is a minority? 
You ever felt abandoned or lonely? Jesus knows. He knows what that feels like as a man of sorrows. You ever felt grief over someone you really love dying? Jesus wept. You ever been lied about, accused, even though you're innocent? Jesus knows how that feels. You ever felt betrayed or ridiculed? Jesus has walked in those shoes as well. You ever had money problems? Jesus was so poor he had nowhere to lay his head. You ever felt misunderstood by a family member? Jesus' family thought that he was crazy at one time. You ever felt highly stressed? Jesus swept drops of blood in his stress. Like sometimes in our suffering, we get so isolated, we think no one understands I'm all alone in this. But you can never, ever say that about Jesus. In fact, the exact opposite is true. We really have no idea what he felt, what he went through, how deep and difficult his suffering was. We can't begin to comprehend how much he suffered in his humanity for us. Number six, Jesus destroyed death, the weapon of our enemy. Verse 14, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus had to take on flesh so he could die and in dying become the substitutionary sacrifice for us, putting to death, death. Jesus could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So if you go back to the garden, God says, if you eat from this one tree, you will die. Death came into creation through sin, disobedience. Death is essentially separation. And there was an immediate separation between God and his image bearers. God shows up after they sinned against him and they're, nak they're, they're naked still, but now they're ashamed. They're hiding. And God says, where are you? It's not that God didn't know. He knew where they were. He was asking that question so that they would ask that themselves. Where, where are we indeed? Why are we hiding? Why all of a sudden are we ashamed of what we've always been? There was death there, separation between them and God. God, uh, there was death and separation between creation. All of a sudden, between Adam and Eve, there will be tension now in marriage. Separation between them and creation. Work would be hard. Procreation would be painful. They would be cast out of the garden. More death. And then one day, eventually, they would be separated from each other when one of them would die physically because these bodies cannot last forever, cursed by sin. Sin brought death, and death became the greatest weapon of our enemy, the devil. But Jesus, through his redeeming sacrifice, satisfied God's requirement for a holy, perfect sacrifice on our behalf. God pours out his wrath on this full and final acceptable sacrifice, his son, thus fulfilling the demands of the law. The devil, though smart and, uh, and knowledgeable, is still limited, limited, so he thinks he's ruining God's plan and seeing Jesus crucified, but he's actually accomplishing God's plan. The curse is reversed. Death is defeated. So that now in Jesus, we have life now forever. Jesus went through the veil of death, came out on the other side alive. So now in Jesus, we live. Death is not the end because Jesus went before us to crush and defeat death. So the enemy does not have this same weapon. We still die. I know you're thinking, wait, I, th I think we die. Yes, we still die. But death was so transformed for those in Christ. When Paul wrote about believers in the New Testament dying, he didn't use the word death. He used the word sleep. 
Jesus turned death into a nap. We literally can lie on our deathbed and tell the people that we love, or if we're next to the person that we love on their deathbed, we can literally tell them, in Christ, I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. And in the perspective of eternity, that is true. It will only be a blink of an eye, and we will be reunited because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. The devil does not win. And while he's still causing chaos and destruction, he's always on a leash. He's always and only acting within what God allows. And that doesn't make death less grieving. That doesn't make our suffering or our pain in life less hard to bear. It still cuts and hurts deeply. But we're able to suffer and grieve with hope and with joy, with assurance. As bad as this is, the tears are not permanent. The suffering is not permanent. It's not always going to be like this. It will not last forever because Jesus has put to death, death, and disarmed our great enemy, which goes hand in hand with number seven. Jesus set us free from the slavery that is the fear of death. Verse 15, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. This is a very personal question that each of us could answer not out loud, but just think to yourself, to what degree do you fear death? To what degree do you fear death? Maybe some ignore death because to face the reality is overwhelming, so we kind of live with our head in the sand. We pretend like death doesn't exist. We ignore health problems and doctor's visits. It's better to pretend like death isn't real, and maybe it won't come, or I don't have to deal with it until it comes. Some do the opposite, and they work really hard to deal with every sickness and take every small thing and make it a big thing, because if I deal with every small thing as a big thing, maybe I can keep pushing death away. You know, I can live longer and exercise and eat vitamins and, and so forth. And there's, there's other ways where the fear of death doesn't necessarily mean despair or morose. It's just I'm working really hard to keep it away, or I'm working really hard to ignore it, or I'm just living in despair because I can't quit thinking about death, and it makes me very afraid. We probably have the strangest relationship to death that any culture of humans have ever had. In some ways, we're isolated from death because very few people die in their homes anymore. It's usually a hospital or nursing home. We have nowhere near the infant mortality rates of previous generations. It's a weird thing when babies or children die now. It used to be very, very common, impacting almost every family. Yet at the same time, we've murdered 60 million babies in their mother's womb over the last 40-plus years. We've just watched almost 600,000 Americans die from COVID. And yet that feels distant and sterile because we're living in these individualistic, sterile bubbles called our lives. So it's, it's weird. How much are we really impacted by the fear of death? Well, when someone you love gets sick, there seems to be no stopping the sickness you find out the answer to that question. You realize how feeble and helpless we are. Because when death starts coming, sometimes there's nothing you can do to stop it. And apart from Jesus setting us free from the slavery that is the fear of death, we would be in bondage. But we know death is not the end. In fact, for God's people, death is the doorway to paradise and life only getting better. Yeah, but don't other religions believe that too? Like what makes us so special? This belief in the afterlife. Well, what makes us so special 
is because Jesus is so special. Because our faith is built not on teachings, but a person who went through the veil of death and came out alive. Something Muhammad did not do, Buddha did not do, Confucius did not do, Joseph Smith did not do, nor any other human being, philosopher, teacher that created any other religion. It's only Jesus who did that, and Jesus is what gives us our perspective and hope and the ability to live without fear of death, which means we're set free, free from the slavery of the fear of death. We're free. We can do whatever God tells us to do. We can go wherever God calls us to go because we know our last breath is not going to happen outside of our good Father's providential will. Whatever. Then why don't you just parachute into North Korea? Well, the only reason I haven't is because he hadn't tell me, told me to do that. If he told me to do that, and I knew for sure he wanted me to do that, I would do it with full confidence that he would keep me alive until he was through with me. We're set free to go wherever he sends us, to do whatever he calls us, to give us all we need. And if we have to do what seems scary or hard or beyond ourselves, it's okay. You're just going to need him that much more. You're going to depend on him that much more. Go live on an island. Go visit a closed country. Go have that hard conversation. Go befriend that difficult person. Go love that person who's far from God. Go learn that language you don't know. Go eat in that restaurant filled with people who aren't like you. Go live in that neighborhood with people different than you. Whatever he calls you to do, he goes with you to help and supply. We don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of anything. Number eight, Jesus became our merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 16. For it is clear that he did not reach out, do, uh, out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. Jesus didn't do any of this for angels. We've covered that already in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But for us, Abraham's offspring, redeemed humanity that had been grafted into the spiritual ancestry of Abraham, and he became human so he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, this is the first of 17 mentions of a high priest in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to be dealing with this a lot, many, many times. And Jesus, in his humanity, became our merciful high priest and faithful high priest, not like the normal high priest who shows up to offer an animal to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. He's the greatest high priest who was not only the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice. There's no high priest in the history of Israel that would have signed up for that. It it wouldn't have made sense to them. How can me sacrificing myself atone for the sins of the people? I'm not perfect or spotless or without blemish. Only Jesus is the high priest who could, in fact, accomplish that. Jesus was and knew and was a demonstration of God's mercy to sinful people and was faithful to finish the task set before him. And it could not have happened if he had not become human. Number nine, Jesus atones for our sins. The end of verse 17, to make atonement for the sins of the people. The purpose was to atone for our sins. This idea of atonement goes way back into the Old Testament. Literally, the word means to cover. The sins of the people would be obvious and the priest would sacrifice the animal and sprinkle the blood on the altar so that God would look at the sins of the people and see them covered by the blood of the perfect spotless sacrifice. The beauty of Jesus is that he didn't just come to cover our sins, but he is the Lamb of God, John 1 tells us, who came to take away the sins of the world. Not just cover, but take away. 
Jesus' sacrifice does atone. It does cover our sins. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. We who are sinful are robed in the righteousness, covered in the righteousness of Christ. So when God sees us, he does see us through the blood of Jesus. But Jesus also cleanses us, washes us. So not only are we not treated according to our sins but forgiven, we're also not dirty in God's eyes. Not soiled in God's eyes. He sees us as holy and blameless all because of Jesus. You could live 10,000 lifetimes and never get close to living one of those lifetimes perfect enough to earn this on your own. Not even close. Yet we get one that we mess up in every single day. Yet our faithful and merciful high priest has done everything for us to always and forever stand before God as clean. Forgiven, accepted, belonging. This is incredible. And then lastly, Jesus suffered greatly and he can help us who are tempted. Jesus suffered greatly and can help us who are tempted. Uh, we see this back in uh, verse 10. He made perfect. He was, uh, the, the source of our salvation, the pioneer of our salvation was made perfect through sufferings. And then verse 18, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus, the pioneer of salvation, was made perfect through sufferings. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't perfect already, but in his sufferings, he fulfilled perfectly God's plan of redemption. It wasn't just the suffering of the cross, but his entire incarnational ministry. Jesus was always misunderstood, never fully grasped. I mean, think about it. The only entity, the only being that 100% knew who Jesus was all the time were the demons. That's a really hard ministry when the people who hate you the most are the only ones who get you and understand who you are. The disciples were half blind all the time, never fully grasping Jesus until he died and rose, not accepted by Jewish religious leaders, constantly attacked and accused, hurting people, constantly needing him and wanting him. Like we can't imagine how hard those three years of ministry were. And then he went to the cross. And all the while resisting every single temptation to sin, quit, start over, use his divine powers in a way that wouldn't glorify God. Like when the sons of thunder said, call down fire and wipe those unbelievers out. He didn't do that. And this is the one. This is the one who helps us when we're tempted. This is the one. Like if you were in legal trouble and you had access to not just the best lawyer in Monroe, not just the best lawyer in Louisiana, or even in America, you had access to the greatest lawyer who's ever lived to handle your legal case. If you had medical issues and you needed a doctor, and you had the best doctor who's ever walked the face of planet Earth to do your medical issues and handle your surgery, how would that be? Are you kidding me? This is great. I can't get better than this. Remember the audience of this letter. Believers in and around Rome tempted to not suffer, tempted to walk away from Jesus back into Judaism because their perspective, from their perspective, that would be better and easier than to continue to identify with Jesus and suffer for him and with him. We've already seen earlier in this chapter the first warning passage to walk away from this great salvation is not an option, it's death. This destruction is judgment. 
To have life, you have to continue with Jesus, but it's going to be super hard. But you're not alone. You have Jesus to help you. The one who is bringing us to glory, pioneering our salvation, sanctifying us, not ashamed to call his brother and sister, took on flesh so he could crush death and the devil, become our faithful and merciful high priest to atone for our sins. Like, who else is better to help you? Who else could you call on more? A Christian, Jesus is with you. This Jesus who did all of this, he is with you all the time. To help us endure, to help us remain faithful, to be obedient, to be worshipful, to, do, to be devoted, to, to help us do everything he's called and created us to do. Do you see him? Are you aware that he is with you? Do you know his presence? How easy is it for you to see him? as a comforting, encouraging presence to help us when we're tempted to chase sin and not chase him. When we're tempted to be ashamed of him when he's never ashamed of us. When we're tempted to give in to the fear of death and try and go back into the slavery of living in the fear of death, to ignore his sanctifying work. And right now, like, you might be feeling shame, like, oh, I'm terrible at this. I'm more aware of the notifications on my phone than I am of Jesus with me. Guess what? Here in your wallowing in shame and despair, Jesus is here. And he's not like, oh, I can't believe y'all are the worst. Like he's coming to you right now to help. Like don't wallow in shame or despair. Like feel conviction because the Holy Spirit does that. We need to feel conviction. Like, okay, Jesus, help me. Help me walk this out better ways. And he's like, okay, let's do it. Let's go. I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm cheering you on. I'm giving you everything you need. Let's go be that people. Okay, here we go. Another Sunday, Jesus showed up. Here I am. I'm ready to go out and try this again. And you're going to do something that's great by the grace of God, and you're going to make a mess of some other stuff this week. And you come back to him every single morning. His His mercies are new every single morning. You come back to these gatherings that we have because we need each other to spur each other on. We come back to these gatherings and you have brothers and sisters who are spurring you on with Jesus' love. But then they fail you. So what do you do? You all turn back to Jesus. Or maybe Jesus uses you to spur them on. But whatever this is and the ways that it's good and the ways it's a mess, Jesus is moving us forward as his people, accomplishing his purposes and changing us and transforming us as a people of God. It's a mystery that Jesus accomplishes his purpose through us or any church, even the ones we think are rock star churches. They're a mess too, I promise. They're a mess. Yet, in some mysterious way, Jesus is using us. So be encouraged, Christian. Be thankful if you're like, yeah, today I'm killing it. Jesus is helping me do that. Give him the praise and honor. And if you're wallowing in shame or despair, Jesus is right here with you encourage you and help you along or maybe he's not maybe he's not because you're just religious and Jesus has never moved in and made you a new person you don't live with the awareness of Jesus because Jesus is not really with you because you've never turned from your sins and repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus to embrace life through him and if the spirit of God is speaking that to your heart this morning 
then the call of the scripture is clear. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Be adopted into the family of God and experience all these things that we've talked about. Jesus, we are incredibly grateful. You are so amazing. We sing songs about you. We read scriptures about you. We talk about you. And, and then your eyes help us to see even more ways we should be amazed by you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. We, we want the deepest part of our being. We want our lives to be all about you. We want you to be our greatest joy. We want you to be our king. We want to organize our entire life around uh, enjoying you and making you known to people who don't know you yet. We want everyone in our city and everyone in our state and in all the nations to know Jesus as king and savior, the ultimate joy of humanity. Please make it happen in me. Please make it happen in us. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus in this way, God, make them alive this morning as they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Help them to see you are making them a new person. Today is the day of their salvation. Give them enough boldness to tell one person before they leave that they've come alive in you. Now help us to sing and celebrate you even more. We pray in Jesus' name.